Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. This is, first of all, I want to apologize. There's some, the, the, the topic that you picked for me is very similar to a talk I gave recently. And so there's, I mean, I, I added new material. I tried to add as much new material as I could, but there's nothing I could do that there's an overlap with existing material, which is, of course, also recorded online. It's very difficult to speak on these things. You know, you can't make the same jokes. It's really hard. Okay, so I'm going to try my best to make new jokes and uh, to, to give you new material, but this will there will be some overlap, unfortunately. That's just the nature of... I did not uh, suggest a topic, so you don't think I'm a lazy person who goes around talking about the same stuff like some two-bit politician. Okay. Um, the, to the topic engaging with Sunnah is, uh, you know, as uh, Atif says, it's sort of a... Um, you know, generally, this is a scholarly issue, and there would be no need to talk about it with a general audience. I'm not saying you're not all intelligent, uh, educated people. Uh, some of you may be very educated, but uh, you know, this kind of audience would probably not uh, exist in uh, for this topic for most of Islamic history, because uh, this was not the, the type of job that normal people would do. It was a job that specialist scholars would do. This would be the, the, the main job of Muslim scholars throughout history, is to try and access the sources of revelation and understand what God wants from us in any time and place. But uh, as Atif also said very perceptively, this has become an issue today because this material is so widely available. And even if you didn't want to go and not find it, some Islamophobe is going to throw it in your face. Right? So, I mean, the, this, the, <laughs> the, the hadiths that Islamophobes have come up with Ya Salam. I mean, they find, the, the, they look in collections that, you know, I've never even heard of. And they find things that are, I mean, they're not, not reliable hadiths, but just things that are totally wild, insane things. And, and then the, but it's very interesting. I found some fascinating stuff over the years from these people. So they, they have a lot of energy and a lot of funding behind them. So, you know, I benefit from, from them. But the point is that this, we have to, we, we normal people have to be able to deal with this because this is part of our life today. So one of the things, in fact, I was thinking about writing like a short book about this or something online or something to this effect, uh, kind of how you, how you deal with a hadith, hadith as a normal person. Um, and so I'll try and go through some of these, I, these principles now with you, inshallah. So the, the first thing, I've, uh, I'm very comfortable saying this, I have no... If, if I, by the way, if, I, if anyone thinks I make mistakes, you can feel free to challenge me or correct me. I have no problem with that. But the, the first is that hadiths are pieces of a puzzle. They are just they are just data. They are data. I'm not trying to say the sunnah of the prophet. Is. That's not, obviously I'm not belittling the sunnah of the prophet. What I'm trying to say is the sunnah of the prophet is is his authoritative precedent. Hadiths are just little pieces of data that help us understand that authoritative precedent. But like any datum or data, you have to look at it in, in a larger uh, scope, in the scope of its a larger data set and the scope of uh, the system in which it fits. So the very important thing to keep in mind, anytime you come across a hadith, this is just a piece of data. And you have to ask yourself what bigger system it fits into. And uh, nor are they data that can be trusted automatically. Right? The default assumption as Muslims, our default assumption is that especially when things involve statements about the nature of God, the nature of faith, what, what people should believe, what's right and wrong, the default assumption is skepticism. If someone comes and says to you, you have to do this or you have to believe that, as a Muslim, the first thing you say is, 
where is your, what, is, what basis do you have to make this claim? Al-Isnad min ad-Din. La'ula al-Isnad laqal man yasha' ma yasha' as Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak died 181, 797, Khamenei said, the Isnad is part of the religion. Whoever said, other, if it weren't for the Isnad, whoever wanted could say whatever they want. We know from the Quran, hatu burhanukum in kuntum sadiqin. Bring your proof if you are truthful. This is a basic principle. So Muslims should be skeptical people. Uh, you know, if someone says, uh, you know, there's a car coming at you right now, please move. Then in that case, I'm not going to be skeptical. I'm going to move. But the point is, when it comes to things about the nature of morality, about the nature of, of, of metaphysics, the nature of God, afterlife, our beliefs, we have to demand evidence. That's the difference between the revealed tradition of Islam and other traditions, and what the Quran constantly reveals Muslims, constantly uh, remind Muslims to do, is not to take their own ahwa, their own wishes, desires, their own speculations as sources for truth, but rather to turn to the intact revelation of God for these things. So, first thing about hadiths, they have to be authenticated. It's very important to remember. Skepticism of hadith is the, is the default setting of Muslim scholars. The whole reason we have, Muslim scholars came up with science of hadith verification is because hundreds and hundreds, dozens and dozens of thousands of hadiths were forged in the early Islamic period. As the famous hadith scholar Shu'ba ibn al-Hajjaj who died around 161 or so, 773 of the common era, said, three-fourths of the hadiths I have found are forged. Three-fourths. He's, you know, two generations before Bukhari and Muslim. Three-fourths of the hadiths he came across were forgeries. The massive forgery of hadith for various political, cultural, religious, legal, racist reasons, whatever, that was what motivated Muslims to, to try and figure out how to sort out weak from force. So the, the, when you come across a hadith, the first thing you do is, is this, is this authenticated or not? Uh, you know, for example, a lot of people might have heard the hadith, uh, The child born of zina will not enter paradise. You could, before we start saying, oh, wow, this is so unfair, this is so unjust, how could you say it? How, before we get, you get so worked up, Right? So you don't, don't engage in interpretation until you have established the authenticity of the text you're interpreting. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. Okay? In this case, uh, this hadith is in main version of it. It's in Mu'ajim of Al-Tabarani, died 369-71 of the Common Era, who his books are full, 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 full of unreliable hadiths, forged hadiths. Of course, there's also reliable ones as well, but these are massive books, some of them, and there's a lot of unreliable hadiths in them. And uh, scholars like Ibn al-Jawzi, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, al-Sakhawi as well, all advance the claim. Either they insist or they, they, they suggest strongly this hadith is, is very unreliable or forged. Um, it also, of course, violates a central Quranic principle, which is, uh, uh, no bearer of burdens bears the burdens of another. So, um, first things, things have to be authenticated. Uh, this is, I remember when I, this is, you know, a lot of these things, they go back to my memories I have when I first became Muslim. I remember when I, when I, around when I first became Muslim, there was this friend of mine who, uh, you know, we were talking about traveling overseas. He said, you know, you shouldn't travel overseas because there's, you know, there's a fire under the ocean, and then there's an ocean under the fire. And I was, I mean, I didn't know what to say. You're like, okay, um, guess I 
I'll reconsider traveling overseas. But I mean, this, had, this is the type of thing where you really have to, sorry, I have to go to the next slide. Come on, mouse. There we go. So this is the kind of thing you really have to be careful about. Now, what color is that for you? Is that gray and red? This is brown? Wow. Okay. So the gray and brown. Okay, so the, uh, yeah. The, uh, basically, this, this is a hadith. This is, so it's the main place you come across it is the Sunan of Abu Dawood. Very important thing to remember. The six books are not authentic, books of authentic hadith. The Bukhari and Muslims books are sahih books. None of the other six books is a book of reliable hadiths. Tirmidhi's book is full of unreliable hadiths that he himself says are unreliable because he's collecting hadiths that are used by different schools of law. And he will point, even if he doesn't agree with them, he'll say, this hadith is unreliable, it's used by such and such a people. So if someone says this hadith in Tirmidhi, that means nothing. Someone says this hadith in Ibn Majah, Ibn Majah's book, according to half of the Dhabi died 1348 of the Kamniyar, one quarter of the book is unreliable. One quarter of the book of Ibn Majah is unreliable. So when people cite these six books, be very careful. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. Bukhari and Muslim, these books are very reliable, obviously. But so this is an Abu Dawood. You might first think, okay, well, then I, it's, it's true. It's something the Prophet said. First of all, that's not true. Second of all, it's definitely not true for this hadith. There's two versions of it. La yarqib al-bahar illa hajjun aw mu'tamiran aw ghazin fi sabidillah. Um, that's the main part. No one should travel. So this is the one in Abu Dawood. No one should travel by sea except those going for Hajj or Umrah or to fight in God's path. For beneath the sea is a fire, and beneath that fire is another sea. That's what you'd find if you read Sunan of Abu Dawood. Okay. Now there's another version of this you find in the Akbar Mecca of al Fatihi. This is a scholar who died around uh, 270, 280 of the uh, Hijri, about uh, 890, 892 of the Common Era. Akbar Mecca, the history reports about Mecca. It's, uh, and this version says, no one should travel by sea except those going for Hajj or Umrah or to fight in the path of God. No mention of this ocean and fire under the ocean and things like that. Now, the version that includes this fire under the ocean here, this, this is a totally unreliable hadith. These two people, Bishop bin Abi Abdullah and Bashir bin Muslim, are unknown. No one knows who they are. That's two unknown links in the sad. This is thrown out the window. History. In addition, you have another version of it, another narration, which also goes through an unknown person. Now, the other version, it doesn't mention the ocean and fire. That, this guy is also unreliable, by the way. Ismail ibn Abi Zakaria. And Leith ibn Abi Sulaim is problematic. But you could say that there's a sort of reliable version that doesn't include this ocean and sea underneath it. So, this is a un, un, very, very unreliable hadith. So before you get uh, exercised about or concerned, you have to uh, try and find out if it's reliable. Now you might say, how do I do that? It's very difficult to do. I mean, it's very difficult to do. Uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani had a book called Sahih Mimma Fi Sunan al-Arba'a. The What is Sahih from the Four Sunans? But the book didn't survive. So there's a couple of other books, Al-Jami Lima Laysafi Sahihain of Muqbil bin Hadi al-Wadi'i, famous Yemeni scholar died in 2001. But this book is sizable, it's in Arabic. And again, it's just one scholar's opinion. So the basic answer is, uh, 
if you, have, if you want to know if a hadith is reliable, you have to ask a, a good hadith scholar. And um, right now, I'm the head of this project to translate the six books and to provide rulings for the authenticity of books that are not, hadith not in Bukhari Muslim. That's one of the things we're trying to, to remedy is this problem. Okay. By the way, second thing, no one should travel by, let's, so this version we've gotten rid of. No one should travel by sea except for those going for Hajj, for Umrah, or to fight in the path of God. Does anyone have a problem with that? Does anyone have the me problem with the meaning of this hadith? What's your problem? Well, it, it's, a, it's a very um, total prohibition that uh, God, along the Quran, speaks about people traveling by ship. Karamna bani adama Right, we have nobled the sons of children of Adam, and we carried them for, across the land and sea. And other verses, they seek out the the bounties of God. So the Quran actually speaks positively about merchant travel on the oceans. So when you look, for example, the Hanafi scholar Al Jassas, he died uh, about three sixty nine seventy, common era, three sixty seven nine seventy seven, around that time. You know, he talks about this. If this hadith is it, what it probably means is it, it, it's emphasizing the benefit of traveling for Hajj, Umrah, and for fighting in the path of God. Because if you die doing in, if you die at sea doing these things, you're going to be a martyr. Right? Actually, if you die at sea in general, you're a martyr. But the point is, this can't be interpreted as a prohibition on any other reason for traveling across the sea. Because we know the Quran actually praises traveling for mercantile purposes. And also, you, learning. Purposes of learning is also emphasized in the Sunnah. So this gets back to the other issues. Even if you've authenticated something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you understand it as it seems. So the, the lesson here is beware what you hear, what you read. Before you get, yes. I was going to ask you about the hadith. Would that be contextualized maybe in prohibition regarding certain circumstances? If there was war, if there was famine, or if there was any problems. I mean, there you could, you could, uh, but you'd have to have some evidence for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could come up with lots of in interpretations, but mm -hmm. you know, you have to have some kind of. So we, just getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but we we don't interpret that hadith literally because we know that it contradicts more reliable sources. So if the fact the prophet said it, it has to be interpreted in light of those other sources. So we know this can't be a prohibition on all other types of travel by sea because other types of travel by sea are praised by the God. Yeah. Therefore, it has to be understood perhaps as an emphasis of the value of these particular reasons, Hajj, Umrah, and fighting in the path of God. Or perhaps it's to emphasize the seriousness of traveling by sea. Traveling by sea is not a joke. You know, traveling, by the way, something we should remember today, traveling internationally by air is not a joke. It's a, it's, it has an effect on your health. It's stressful, it takes away from your family, and of course, you know, you can die in horrendous plane crashes, God forbid. Okay, so uh, beware what you hear or read. Um, and my, my, my own advice to you is, if you, are count, if you encounter a hadith you, you don't understand or that concerns you, just withhold judgment on it. You know, don't, the, you don't constantly have to be, you know, manifesting your moral worldview on everything that comes into your surroundings you know you can you can just be like I, i'm sorry i just don't know how to react to this that's a completely legitimate thing to say if you don't know how to deal with something or you don't know what your reaction should be you can withhold judgment on it until you can ask someone who's qualified okay a very important thing to keep in mind is that uh and this is a bit obscure in arabic because in arabic oftentimes the word hadith is used to refer both to 
a general story. Let's say, you know, the, the Prophet said, um, Allahumma said, Muhammad said, um, like, uh, he prohibited selling the wala, the patronage of a freed slave. That's a general story. Now, there's lots of different narrations of that. We'll get into this. So you can have a general story about an episode in the Prophet's life, but there might be lots of different narrations of that story, and sometimes those narrations can have big differences from one another. For example, there's over 100 companions of the Prophet narrated the Hadith, whoever, whoever misrepresents me intentionally, let them prepare for themselves a seat in hellfire. Whoever misrepresents me intentionally, let them prepare for themselves a seat in hellfire. Now, the one version of this hadith tra transmitted by the companion Abdullah ibn Zubair says, whoever misrepresents me, let him prepare for himself a seat in hellfire. Does anyone know the difference between what I just said and the version I gave before? Intentions. That's a big, so if I made a mistake in a hadith in this class today, in theory, according to Abdullah ibn Zubair's version, I'm going to hell. I mean, that, so you, these are, these are, some of these differences can be big. Most of the time, they're not important. So you have to keep in mind, there's different narrations, and in order to really understand even one hadith, you have to collect all the narrations and look at them together, because they're giving different pieces of the puzzle. And I'll give some examples of that right now. Okay, this is one, I hope you can read this. I'll read it out loud to you anyway. So, this is from Sahih al-Bukhari. Ali bin Abdullah narrated to us saying, Abdurrahman bin Mahdi narrated to us from Malik bin Anas, from Makhrama bin Sulaiman, from Quraib, from Ibn Abbas, عنهما, who said, I slept at the home of my aunt Maimuna. Who's Maimuna? She just some random person? She's the wife of the Prophet. Uh, I said, I want to watch the prayer of the Messenger of God. So a cushion was laid out for him, the Messenger of God, and the Messenger of God slept on it lengthwise. And he awoke at night and started to uh, wipe the sleep from his face and then read the last 10 verses from Surah Ali Imran until he finished the chapter. Then he went to a water skin that was hung up and started performing his ablutions. Then he went to pray. So I got up and did as he did. Then I went and stood at his side. But the messenger of God, placed his hand on my head and took my ear and started twisting it. Then he prayed two prayer units, then two more, 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 and then he prayed just one unit. So basically what do we have here? The prophet gets up in the middle of the light to pray, and apparently randomly decides to twist Ibn Abbas's ear. That's what it says, right? So you're Islamophobia, like, <laughs> being mean to children. Okay, but look, this is another narration. Ali ibn Abdullah narrated us saying Ibn Mahdi from Sufyan, from Salama, from Quray, from Ibn Abbas. By the way, that's, Isnad is mostly the same as Isnad. There's one different person, but clearly this, both versions are being transmitted. But then Abbas said, I slept at the home of my aunt Maimuna, the wife of the Prophet, and the Prophet rose to relieve himself and then washed his face and hands and then went to sleep again. Then he rose and went to the water skin, untying it and performing his ablutions uh, a bit more than usual, but not like doing it twice. Then he prayed and I rushed over, not wanting to think that I was hesitant to pray and was just watching him. And I performed my ablutions. Then he stood, he stood up in his prayer, so I went and stood at his left but he took me by the ear and turned me around to his right and then completed his prayers, 13 cycles in all. Then he went back to sleep until he snored and he snored when he slept. Then Bilal called him to the dawn prayer and he prayed without performing his ablutions. And he used to say, uh, and that finishes the hadith with a dua the Prophet made. So here we have the information. Why was he pulling? He wasn't twisting Ibn Abbas's ear. 
Ibn Abbas came to pray at, behind him on his left. Is that correct? So he goes like this. Takes him around to the right side. Well, why didn't Ibn Abbas, why wasn't that mentioned in the other narration? Because what do people care, what are, if anyone can guess, what are Muslim scholars caring about what are they interested in when they're reciting this hadith? They're not just in there reciting this hadith in some kind of public performance. This is taking place in the context of discussions about law and doctrine. So they're, they're obviously interested in the number of prayer cycles. They're interested in the dua that he made. And here you have something very interesting. He went to bed, he snored, he got up, he prayed without doing ablutions. Is this allowed? No. So this is a special ruling for the Prophet, because his heart never sleeps. His heart's always remembering God. So the, the issue of Ibn Abbas's ear getting pulled is not, that's not important to, for the stuff that Muslim scholars are talking about when they're discussing the city. You have to look at the different versions together to understand that. So this is what I mean. If you saw the first version on its own, you'd say, oh, what the heck is going on here? This is a cruelty to children for no reason. Okay. Uh, some other examples of this, the Prophet, this hadith, you find in uh, one of the chapter titles of Bukhari, uh, you see the hadith, this hadith specifically in the Muslim of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, ba'a mudabbiran. Mudabbaran. He sold a mudabbar slave. A mudabbar slave is a slave who has been manumitted, effective on the owner's death. So the owner says, when I die, you'll be free. Now, what, is the prob what might be a problem with selling that slave? Who can guess? Sorry, what? Yeah, I mean, so you're, you're, you're a phrase, your slave who's been Ted Beard. And then your owner says, I'm going to sell you. Like, uh, <laughs> e does that mean I'm not going to get free anymore when you die? Yeah, that's kind of putting this at risk. So if you saw this, you'd say, oh, well, the prophet didn't care about that. You have no concern for the slave's uh, promised freedom. But when you look at the, uh, this, is a very, this is a very restricted version of a larger hadith. When you take the different narrations together, this is what you get. I'll collapse them all together. And these are all from Sahih Bukhari, all the narrations I'm giving you. The prophet, there was a guy who was one of the Ansar. He had a slave. And he gave that he manumitted that slave in Tedbir way. So the slave is going to be free when he dies. That man had no other assets. He was, he was totally impoverished and he had debts. He had debts upon him. Now, so what did the prophet do? The prophet heard about this. He calls the man he, and the slave and he says, who will buy this slave from me? Of course, no one's going to turn down a command from the prophet of God. So one of the companions buys a slave for 800 dirhams which is 800 silver coins. That's a lot of money. Okay, that's about um, three-fourths of the amount that you would pay if you accidentally murdered somebody. And so that's like a huge amount of money. Accidentally killed somebody. Um, then the, uh, the, he gives the money to the guy, to the poor man. Now, it, we don't know exactly what happened with the slave. We know the slave died later on, but we don't know if it, if it, what happened. Now, what's the... What, so the prophet is basically trying to help this man to get money. 
uh, and so he sells the asset he has for a high value. Now, what does that tell? What does this tell us if you're a Muslim scholar trying to derive law? You know, it's permissible to sell a mudabber slave, because otherwise the prophet wouldn't have done it. So that's what this version is telling us. Question: jur Muslim jurists ask, can you sell a mudabber slave or not? Yes, you can. Now they have to start thinking about other issues. Is that an absolute permissibility or is it restricted permissibility? Well, in the Hanafi and the Maliki school, they'd say it's restricted. They'd say, especially in the Maliki school or also in the Hanafi school, uh, it should only be done if the person who's selling them is in a state of need. So if you are impoverished and you need money, you can sell your Mudabur slave. Otherwise, you shouldn't do it. And then the early jurist, Leif bin Sa'ad, who's a famous jurist from Egypt, he died in 175 Hijri. Um, and he said, you can only sell the Mudabur slave if the new owner honors the Tadbir contract. So, you know, if we're thinking about how we, you know, if Muslims were to, if slavery were around today, what rulings would we take? To take the most, the, in my opinion, the most, the, the ruling that is most sensitive to the slave's needs is the ruling of Leif bin Sa'id. So you can see that there's, Muslim scholars are taking this ruling of the, this hadith of the prophet, or this discussion of what he did, the statement about something he did, and they're putting it in the context of what are the other sensitivities. The prophets in the Quran are constantly urging Muslims to free slaves. This is a tremendous uh, good deed. It's good for the slave. It's good for the person who frees them. So we know that's an important principle, an important uh, emphasis. But we know you're also allowed to sell a tedbir slave. So how do you put these together? That's the question Muslim scholars are answering. Okay. Um, and this is another one. I love the Tadi. This fascinates me. The first time I read it, I was really intrigued. So if you look in the Sahih Bukhari, you'll find a hadith that says, narrations from Ibn Omar and Anas bin Malik, the Prophet forbade a settled person from selling to a Bedouin. Naha and Yabi'a hadirun libad. The Prophet forbade a settled person or a town person or a city person from selling to a Bedouin. It seems kind of unfair, right? Why would you why would you prohibit a Bedouin from or a townsperson from selling to a Bedouin? You have to look at the. Ex, so this comes from a several different narrations. The narration from Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas, a student, says, "Why is this?" And he says, "Or what does this mean?" Ibn Abbas says, "Ah, the person should not be a simsar." Those of you who live in Egypt know what simsars are. Simsars are broke, brokers. Not just a broker, it's a middleman. A middleman who's getting a markup. So what does this mean? I call this Cairo airport syndrome. Right? So you show up in the airport in Cairo and you have no idea how much it costs to go downtown. So you, you taxi cab driver comes and says, I'll take you downtown for 200 pounds. You say, sounds good to me. You get in the airport, you're paying 200 pounds, you get downtown, you find out that it was only 25 pounds. You had no idea because you're basically a Bedouin coming from outside going to the town. And then, so in another explanation of this hadith, in the Sunnah of Abu Dawood, the companion Talha bin Ubaidullah, the senior companion Talha bin Ubaidullah, says, let the person, the Bedouin, go into the market and see the prices for things. Then you can sell stuff to him. You can't sell things to someone who hasn't been to the market. They have no idea how much an axe costs or a bushel of grain costs. If you sit at the gate of the town and you, you sell things at an overpriced uh, rate, this is abusing the, the people from out of town. This is what this means. Okay. 
Um, three, hadiths have to be fit into a larger system. Have to be fit into a larger system. We've kind of already gone over that, but it's, it's, it's important to, go, to emphasize that over and over again. And the, the best example of this is the hadith in you know, Bukhari and other collections, Sahih hadith, where the Prophet says, Umirtu and Muqatil and Nasati Yakulu la ilaha illallah, wa inna Muhammad Rasulullah, wa yuqimu salah, wa yutu zakah, in fa'alad, in fa'alu dalek asama minhum, asama minni dama'ahum wa amwalahum illa fi haqqal islam wa hisabahum Allah. So I have been commanded to fight the people until they say there is no God but God and Muhammad is the Messenger of God and they establish the prayer and they pay the zakat. If they do so, their wealth and their blood is prohibited for me, i.e. I can't kill them or take their money, except for a reason legitimated by Islam. So this hadith, obviously we all know it from a lot of reasons, but if you didn't know it already, you probably heard it from some Islamophobic website. So it seems to basically say Muslims should fight, are commanded to fight non-Muslims until they become Muslim, you know, convert or die. And this hadith is sahih. There's no debate about that. Uh, but, again, you have to take into the context, not just of other hadith, the sunnah of the Prophet overall, but also the Qur'an, of course. So the Qur'anic verse, this hadith seems to say, if you come across a non-Muslim, you have to fight them until they become Muslim or you kill them. But we know that's not true because the Qur'an says, قَاتُلُوا الَّذِينَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَلَا يَوْمَ الْآخِرِ وَلَا يُحَرَّمُونَ مَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ وَلَا يَدِينُونَ دِينَ الْحَقِّ من الذين أوتوا الكتاب حتى يؤتوا الجزية عن يد وهم وهم صاغرون right fight those the Quran says in verse nine fight those people who do not believe in God or nor the day of judgment and they do not forbid what God and His messenger have forbidden and they do not believe in the true religion the ones who come from the people of the book Fight them until they give the jizya in a, and are, subordinate themselves to you. So we know actually from the Quran that people who are from the people of the book, they don't have to become Muslim. They can just they can live under a Muslim rule and pay jizya. So right away we know this hadith can't be absolute. And then we start looking at the Sunnah of the Prophet more generally. We see that the Prophet t- did not force the Christians of Nedron to convert. He, uh, Allow them to continue uh, as Christians. In fact, he says in a letter to them, we will not molest any of your bishops or your priests or your monks. He just said you can't do, you can't uh, do riba. You can't do riba. The Christians of Eila, uh, what's now Elat in Israel, the uh, Jews in Chaybar, they're all allowed to continue practicing their religion and to remain under Muslim rule as long as they pay tax to the Muslim. So we know this isn't true. And then we see... From other narrations, that, for example, in the, the uh, Sunan of An-Nasai, the version of this from Anas bin Malik, where it says, not qatil umirtu uh, anuqatil an-nas, I've been commanded to fight people, but it says instead, umirtu anuqatil al-mushrikeen, I've been commanded to fight the mushrikeen. And by, then you start saying, okay, so what it really means is I've been commanded to fight the polytheists. So let's say I'm a Muslim general and I invade India and I have all these polytheist Hindus now, so I should fight them. Ah, 
We have to again look at the how did how did Muslims understand what a mushrik is? Muslim scholars in the very beginning understood mushriks as being the mushrikun of Arabia. Because they did not treat the Hindus, they, the Muslims in, invaded India in 711 of the common era. They, didn't, they immediately treated Hindus as people of the book. They immediately treated them as people of the book. So the mushrikun are polytheists of Arabia. And those are, the polytheists of Arabia, are the only group that Muslims were commanded to fight until they became Muslim. Every other group of people, as far as I know, every other group of people that Muslims have ever been encountered, have ever encountered or have been told about, their options are they can become Muslim or they can continue practicing their religion and pay the jizya. So we know that when we look at other narrations, we see, ah, this nas is substituted with mushrikun, polytheists. Any questions so far? Yes. Yes. How does that fit in all that says like God and deed? Well, the, no, no compulsion of religion. This is well. This is actually a great uh, question. So, um, the laikrahafi deen was generally understood by Muslims, pre-modern Muslim scholars, as a qualified command. So, uh, you know what? <laughs> I feel kind of bad saying this, but. You know, sometimes uh, like Muslim scholars today will get upset if you try and say that something was historically specific. You say, no, no, this ruling was for a certain time. They say, no, you can't do that. That's what exactly what Muslim scholars did with that verse. They said, there was, if you, you, there's lots of reports. Uh, most of them are in tafsir collections, which are, they're like early books of tafsir, and they're just reports from successors and sometimes companions about the circumstances of revelation. And what happened was there was a, a child in Medina who was raised, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Medinans, they wanted to teach their children to read. They sent them to the only schools were Jewish schools. Like Zayd bin Thabit learned how to read, write Hebrew and Aramaic in uh, Syriac in uh, Jewish schools. So this kid basically identifies as Jewish. And when the, one of the Jewish, I can't remember which tribe it was, I think it's Ben Nadir, when they get expelled from Medina after the Battle of, uh, of Uhud, uh, the child goes with them. And the mother basically comes to the prophet and says, uh, you know, I, I'll force him to stay with me. And the, the Quranic rule then comes down saying there's no compulsion. You can't compel this person to, choose, to, to be your religion and not to identify as Jewish. So that, that piece of data led many Muslim scholars to say this is not an absolute statement. This is actually a historically qualified statement. Um, now, of course, what Muslim scholars, uh, the vast majority, is certainly in the modern period, have said that, well, that, that's actually a complete misunderstanding the Quranic impetus, which is clearly saying that people can't be compelled to make religious choices. So this is actually an instance where, uh, and there's, I think, you know, um, I think there are some instances where modern Muslim scholars, and i.e. Muslim scholars who live in the modern period, uh, have looked back on majority opinions from the past and seen that those majority opinions were culturally influenced. Now, just to be, I want to be very clear about this. I think sometimes lots of, sometimes most Muslim scholars got things wrong. A lot of times some Muslim scholars got things wrong. But I don't know of any instance that I, that I don't know of any instance where all Muslim scholars got something wrong. So sometimes we'll see issues which, you know, we, 
because of our culture, you know, cultural input on us, we might actually be sensitive to you and say, hey, for example, you know, women speaking in public. You know, for much of Islamic history and many, like in the Hanafi school of law or even the Shafi school of law, you know, women shouldn't be speaking in public or either it's either makruh or haram, right? Uh, and they're, you know, they're not participants in public life. They're not participants in leadership. And then, you know, that, does, that goes unquestioned. And then suddenly you might, you know, you, you, you see Theresa May or something and you say, hey, what about women in public life? And then uh, you, you look back and you find, well, actually in the time of the prophet, the wives of the prophet Aisha was very public participant in uh, political life. In the the Mushkarq um, Mani, the thought about the Hawiya, the story of it, during Omar al Khattab's khutbah, a woman gets up and corrects his, uh, and then he doesn't, that's a reliable report according to Ibn Kathir, and he doesn't, no one says, oh, why are you talking? No, first of all, they don't say, why are you talking during the khutbah? Second, they don't say, why are you talking because you're a woman? So uh, we can, you know, sometimes outside influence can lead us to remind us of ways in which we have gotten our heritage wrong. But I want to stress, in my, it's my belief, in my opinion, that I don't think all Muslim scholars got anything wrong. I want to make that very clear. Sorry, uh, just, just on the point, on the point about um, Muslims treating Hindus as people of the book, is that sort of a, oh, one thing, is, is that the, the sort of the Arab Muslims that came or the Muslims from India who are there? So the Muhammad ibn al-Qasim, the Arab Muslim under the Umayyads who invaded yeah. uh, Sindh and established the capital of Mansura, and then basically Muslims kind of get cut off from, there's Muslims there, but they sort of, you know, they're like the lost colony or something. You know, no one hears about them for a while. By the way, I'm really excited about this new Tom Hardy TV show, Taboo. I just want to say that. Uh, hopefully there's not a lot of nudity. I think there probably will be, that's my guess. The, anyway, the, but then when, of course, the next significant contact, at least state contact, is during the Ghaznavid period. But uh, we know from this uh, you know, early collection, I forget what's called, uh, Shehish, what is it called? It's this really weird book. It's just been translated to English, actually, uh, in, from Persian. It's an early history of the conquest of India by Muslims. And we know, when they go to this place called Brahmanavad, they do what's called the Brahmanavad Compact. And they basically just see that they treat all the Hindus, all the people who are there, native Indian religions, as people of the book. And the Brahmins are exempted from the jizya, and they collect the jizya and give it to the Muslim rulers. And so that's, that's Arab Muslims. And then um, later on, the Turkic, different Turkic dynasties do the same thing. But also, is that a willful uh, sort of ignorance kind of thing? Is that just a politician making a ruling, or is it a legitimate? Leg well, at first, we don't, we just know it's, for all we know, they had, you know, it was their religious opinion, too. We know it's a political settlement. But then, in the Hanafi school of law, the people of the book can be anybody. I mean, uh, there, there's, no, there's not an exclusive list. The Quranic list is not exclusive. So anybody you come across who has any degree of some original revealed con you know, element of their religion is treated as people of the book. And the, the, the Hindus, the different Hindu, different faiths or different traditions within the Hindu religious family clearly did have some originally uh, monotheistic scripture. So those Muslims were actually looking for excuses to include well, I think one, I mean, this is an interesting topic. You know, the, uh, one of the things you find pretty consistently in uh, Muslim history, from our history of Muslim 
states in South Asia, and also from religious scholars like Ziauddin al-Barani, who was very conservative in the time of the, I think it was in the 1100s time of, no, sorry, uh, the 1300s, the time of uh, Firoz Shah, is that, um, you see this repeated even in Mughal period, they constantly will say, um, we, there's, it is not possible for us to convert this population to Islam. Like, we basically, we can't control these people. There are way too many of them. We need to figure out how to deal with them. So even if, if you came, if you believe that Muslims could not rule Hindus, except if those Muslims converted those Hindus by force, you were not going to function, you were not going to make it in South Asia. Because your Muslims at most were 20, at the very maximum population in South Asia were 25% of the population. And before, you know, prior to the Mughal period, you're talking about very, very small Muslim ruling castes that could not possibly exercise that kind of influence over the population. Okay, the women, as last one, this is a, I, this is a great example. In Sahih Bukhari and, and Muslim, you have, a, you have a hadith where the, uh, um, the Prophet says, um, the uh, Shu'um is like bad omen. So like the bad, three things are bad omens. Women, horses, and houses. This is one of these things from pre-Islamic Arabia where you just, you're like, who knows what this stuff. I mean, it just comes out of some other universe, right? Um, Do you want to give a lecture? I'm just joking. No, no, because that's exactly what I was going to say. So in in uh, in one version of that hadith, Aisha gets no. You're 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 very right. I think it's funny that I was about to say. It. So Aisha says, the one of the companions is quoting the prophet as saying this. The prophet did say that, but Aisha says he said this to show that this is a belief that was practiced in the time of Jahiliyyah that doesn't have any basis in Islam. So it would be like, you know, someone saying, if I said, some people say that, you know, daisies have a tendency to use really bad sauces on their food. Some people say that. I don't agree with that. Someone could say, Jonathan Brown said this thing. And that's true, I did say that. But I, I said it for the purposes of refuting it. So this is a very good example of something can be said by the prophet. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's a normative statement. And many of the corrections of Aisha... Um, there's a whole book that Imam Zarkashi who died around uh, 1392, 1394 of the Common Era. Imam Zarkashi has a whole book called Istidrakat Aisha, right? The whole corrections of Aisha, which these are found in the six books, and and it, some of them are even earlier in like the Musnad of Ashafi and things like that. They are transmitted along with the Hadiths. The vast majority of them are not her telling another companion the Prophet didn't say this. It's the companion, let's say, like Ibn Omar or Abu Huraira, citing a hadith of the Prophet in order to make a point, and not Aisha pointing out, you misunderstood the context in which he said that. He didn't say that in, this, in the way you think. He didn't mean what you think he meant. Okay, uh, how much more time do I have? Okay, about 10 minutes. I completely lost track of time. This is an interesting uh, study. One of uh, <coughs> Muntessar's, who's Muntessar's Zaman? He's not here, I guess. He's a student. Where is he? Somewhere in the UK. I can't keep all the different fellows in straight. But he's, he, said, he, he emailed me recently about this article questioning its validity. But I think it's a, I mean, it's an interesting article. This is an article that uh, 
where in, in com computational linguistics, where some uh, scholar ran the kind of language of the Quran, and I think in Sahih Bukhari through analysis, and he found they come from different speakers. Big surprise. I don't find that interesting because I already knew that. What I find interesting is the idea of the nature of the prophet's speech. And this is what I think is fascinating. One of the reasons that I think that the, taken as a whole, the Hadith corpus is generally reliable, right? especially like well, well sifted through books like Bukhari and Muslim, that they really do represent the speech of the Prophet is because there are, the, the style is extremely consistent. There is clearly a prophetic style of speech. The Prophet spoke in a certain way. Now, you might not like that way, or somebody might not like that way, but it certainly was his way of speaking. He certainly had a specific way of speaking. And it doesn't take too much exposure to Hadith reading to, before you get a sense of what that way of speaking. One of, the, one of the, the features of his speech is that it's hyperbolic. It is not the speech of a lawyer. Probably because nobody ever listens to lawyers. You know, no one's ever inspired by lawyers. Even when lawyers are inspirational, it's because they become like a religious figure like Gandhi or something like that. They don't, you know, lawyers talking like lawyers talk don't inspire anybody. So his, his speech, like the Quran, a lot of it is hortatory. It's trying to inspire people and advise them, and move them in a, in a, to, to, to do good deeds or to believe in a certain way. Um, and one of the challenges that Muslim scholars have always had is to take speech that is decidedly not legal in nature and try and see if there's any legal uh, rulings embedded in that speech. So one of the things about the Prophet's speech is that it is incredibly hyperbolic a lot of the time. Um, and so I've, I like this idea. I don't, know, I don't know if anyone else has come up with it before. I think in terms of filters, one of the, 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 key, the keys, I think, to having a really understanding hadith when you come across them is to have a set of filters in your mind. I don't know if any Muslim scholar ever came up with these filters. I sort of tried to collect them as I see them, and I'll just give you a couple of them uh, now. First, severity generally means discouragement. So the, again, the Prophet's language is hyperbolic. He doesn't say things like, um, it's not always the best thing to do this. Well, sometimes he does. For example, when a Bedouin is urinating in the mosque, he says, you know, the mosque is for prayer, which is a very subtle way of, of uh, dealing with that. So he could be very soft, but when he's trying to make a point, he's very clear about that point. Things aren't sort of bad, they're really bad. Right? Uh, and, for example, this hadith, if, if the Salah hadukum, it's in, you know, Sahih Bukhari and other books, if the Salah hadukum uh, ila shay'in yasturuhu, what does this mean? If one of you is doing your prayer and you put something in front of you to create kind of a block or a barrier in front of you, and someone's still trying to pass in front of you, then press them, push them. And if they refuse to stop, they keep trying to push in front of you, then it literally says, then fight them, because they are, the, they are the devil. Now, what that means literally is, okay, I'm praying, the guy keeps trying to pass in front of me. Literally, it means I then say, okay. <laughs> I start my prayer and we fight. Because, now, think about, first of all, 
This, are Muslims legally required to do that? Is that what the Sunnah of the Prophet is? No, we know that because there's no record of any companion ever advocating this, nor of this ever being done. Second of all, we know we're not supposed to break our prayers for no, for, 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 for no reason. And one of, in, in order for me to fight this guy, I have to break my prayer. So him passing, by the way, him passing in front of me is not going to break my prayer. It doesn't break my prayer. What would break my prayer is me stopping my prayer in order to punch him. So for a couple of reasons, both from the sunnah of the prophet and the companions and from kind of legal reasoning, we know we're not going to take this hadith literally. So what does it mean? Well, think about this. And I mean, it took me a while to, to, for this to dawn on me. If I put my arm out, let's say I'm in the mosque. Sometimes you do this. You walk across and you pass in front of you, put their arm, someone puts their arm out. What do you do? You usually go, oh, gee. What happens if I just said, I don't care, I'm going to walk in front of you? What is manifesting itself in my, what am I at that moment? I actually am a shaitan. I mean, what if I, my lower self has completely dominated me, and I'm in fact a manifest vehicle of, of satanic impulses in that moment. I mean, if you think about it, that's exactly, what, other, what would lead you to force your way in front of someone, even after they've already reminded you not to pass in front of them? So what do they, how do scholars understand this hadith? It, if, the, if the person keeps trying to push past you, then really forcefully keep them away. This was the second one. It's uh, I remember I was giving a speech at a university in the U.S. and a student came up to me beforehand and told me he had heard this in a khutbah and his faith had been completely, you know, shaken by it. And uh, so this is uh, again from Sahih Bukhari. Ismail narrated to us saying Malik narrated to me from Abu Zanad, from Al Araj, from Abu Huraira. That the Messenger of God وسلم, said, By the one who holds my soul in his hand, indeed, I would like to order firewood gathered and then issue the command of prayer, and then command a man to lead the people in prayer. Then I would follow up on those men who were not present and burn down their houses on top of them. By the one who holds my soul in his hand, if any of you knew what, that he would find a fatty bone or two, or two tender lamb legs, he would be present at the dinner. So what is this talking about? The call to prayer happens and people don't go to the mosque and pray. And the prophet is, he's, that's for him, he's, he's making the analogy of people who are invited to a dinner and they know there's going to be delicious food there and they still don't go. It doesn't make sense. Now, that's, that's a playful analogy. And if he were really saying, I want to burn people's houses down who don't go to pray in the mosque, he's probably not going to follow it up with a play, playful analogy. But again, this is hyperbolic language. It's like, this, upset, this upsets me so much that I, I, I want to burn their houses down. That's what he's saying. How do we know that's not actually what Muslims are supposed to do? Because there's no record ever of the Prophet doing this or any of the companions ever doing this. And in addition, it completely violates other rules like you can't destroy someone's property without legal cause. And we know of no evidence that this is just cause. So again, the, the Sunnah of the Prophet taken as a whole shows us this is not to be taken literally. This is the prophet's hyperbolic language, saying this, is, this doesn't make sense to me. Why would you not go to the, to the mosque to pray? Why would you not go to the, the dinner where you're going to find delicious food? Okay. Um, and filter number two, minna. lots of times you find hadith that say, the person who does such and such a thing is not from amongst us. 
Man minna. Whoever cheats is not from amongst us. Man hamala alayna silah minna. Whoever carries arms against us is not from amongst us. Now, technically, what that means is that they're not Muslim. They're kuffar. They have left the Muslim community. But that's not what it means. And this is, a, this is just a filter you see. Uh, even early, very early scholars, before the collection of hadiths even had taken place, you'll see, for example, Waqi ibn al-Jarrah and other scholars say, i.e., laysa mithlina. Laysa minna, laysa mithlina. Not from amongst us, they're not like us. This is not the type of thing a Muslim does. Cheating, whoever cheats, this is not the type of thing a Muslim does. Whoever carries arms against other Muslims, this is not the type of thing that Muslims do. So this doesn't literally mean that someone has left the community. It means they are engaged in action that is not befitting of a Muslim. Uh, there's kufr and then there's big kufr. The later scholars, by the time you get to Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, will talk about al-kufr al-akbar, al-kufr al-azhar, the greater kufr and the lesser kufr. So there's kufr with a capital K is when you cease to be Muslim. Like you decide, you know, I renounce Islam, I'm going to become a Buddhist or something like that. That's, you've left Islam. Now, if I, let's say, if I drink alcohol, the Prophet says, the person, the person who's drinking alcohol, what, in that moment they're drinking alcohol, they're not Muslim. They don't believe. They don't have faith. But that's, think about it, when you're engaged, the moment you engage in, that the actual instant you're engaging in that sin, you are denying God. That doesn't mean you cease to be Muslim. It means that you have denied God in that moment. So people can engage in little micro acts of kufr all the time. That doesn't actually mean they're a kafir as it. They don't fit into that legal category. And we, of course, we have hadiths, for example, um, uh, cursing a Muslim is fusub or iniquity, and, fi and fighting other Muslims is kufr. This is a hadith, uh, well-known hadith. But uh, Ibn Abbas explains that this kufr is, he says, this is kufr that is, it's less than the real kufr. When you fight other Muslims, you are denying God in the sense, but you don't, you're not actually becoming a kafir. How do we know this is true? Not only because of Ibn Abbas's statement, because the Quran talks about if two groups within the believers fight each other, they literally fight each other with weapons, then you're supposed to reconcile them. Now, if, if Muslims fighting other Muslims made them unbelievers, then there wouldn't be two parties from amongst the believers. So the Quran also shows us that we can't understand that literally. Fine, uh, <coughs> almost finally, um, you often find hadith, none of you believes until I'm, let's say, more dear to them than their parents or their children and all people. What, this doesn't mean the person doesn't believe. It means their belief is not complete. They do not have perfect iman until they do this and that sort of uh, thing. Similarly, for example, Hadith Sahih Muslim uh, and Sahih Bukhari, no one will enter Hadith uh, Jannah if they have even a mustard's grain weight of pride in their hearts. That's rough. That's a tall order, right? I have a lot more than them. I have, you know, a couple of giant jars of mustard grain of pride in my heart. So basically, no one, that means basically no one's going to get into paradise. That's technically what this means. But we know that's not the case uh, from numerous other Quran verses and hadith. So what this means is that you won't enter heaven immediately. So your sins have to be, you know, you can be forgiven for many sins. Maybe you've been forgiven by all, for all your sins. But it's also possible for God to punish you for the sins you've committed. 
So lots of people will be punished for the sins they committed in life, and then they'll enter the garden in the afterlife. So if you have pride in your heart even a little bit, you will not enter paradise immediately. Maybe it would take, you know, whatever, a microsecond of, of other world time. I'm not sure, even sure how we could talk about that. Okay, so uh, those are some of the filters. I, there are other ones we could talk about. Hopefully I'll write a book on this soon or something like that. But uh, I've probably already gone over time. So if you have any questions or comments, I'll be happy to take them.